exposing pseudo-astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 57 for the second half of December 2012. The topic I'm going to talk about today is something on the sun doing something bad on December 21st, 2012. Although there are many permutations to it, the basic claim to look at during this episode, which is going out just five days before the alleged end of the world, or possibly Great Enlightenment, is just what I said before. Something on the sun is going to do something that will affect dust negatively on December 21st of 2012. I'm torn in this episode between going into great detail on all of the different things people say, or whether I should just get straight to the punchline. So I decided to go a bit half and half, and for those of you who want the punchline now and want to skip the rest of the episode, I don't know why you would, there's lots of coast-to-coast clips and Jesse Ventura's conspiracy theory coming up, well, the punchline is that, no, nothing unusual is going to be happening in five days on the sun that's going to kill us. And if you're listening to this episode after December 21st, 2012, then you already know that. Now to go into a little bit more detail, this claim has history rooted well before the whole 2012 phenomenon, but like Planet X, it's been co-opted by the 2012 doomsday people, and it, like Planet X, I fully expect will persist well beyond the next five days. After all, Major Ed Dames, the infamous, perhaps remote viewer, has been talking about the solar kill shot for pretty much over 20 years. Now, for more recent history of this claim, something that roughly half of the 30-some-odd hours of Coast to Coast guests that I listened to for research for this episode cited Michio Kaku in an interview that he gave to Fox News back in 2008. As an aside, Dr. Kaku, for those who don't know, is a renowned theoretical physicist who has written many popular books on various subjects like hyperspace. I have one or two of them, and my hamster ate one of them. Unfortunately, and this is somewhat borrowed from Dr. Steve Novella, in my opinion, Michio Kaku lacks one of the three qualities that scientists who are popularizers of science should have. They need to be able to do science, which Kaku can. They need to be able to communicate science, which Kaku can. And they need to be able to think critically about ways in which they can be fooled and ways in which people can misinterpret what they say which Kaku can't or doesn't really often very much do. Long-time listeners of this podcast, if I can actually say long time after only 16 months, probably have an idea of where I'm going with this, but you'll need to wait a bit longer before I actually say it explicitly. People have also cited reports from NASA from 2006, or a more recent report from the National Academies of Science from 2008, that warn of the dangers of very large energetic solar outbursts aimed at Earth that could destroy power grids. Of course, then there are some other people who point to more, shall we say, sketchy lines of evidence. Timing-wise, uh, according to the Avebury 2008 formation, which I document in Crossing the Cusp, uh, we're going to see Planet X in December 2012. And this is also the period of the solar maximum when the sun is forecasted to be its most violent. Now, there are really serious alerts out there 
you know, back in 2008, Dr. Mishu Kaku, we saw him on Fox, and the news uh, entertainer at that point just blew him off, just said it was uh, another millennium bug scare and didn't take it seriously. And it was pretty humiliating for uh, Kaku, but uh, still the same. The message is there, Academy of Sciences, uh, you hear voices at NASA, and what they're saying is that we're going to see some really intense solar activity, sufficient enough that it could take out large swaths of our telecommunications and power grids. Uh, it could really be, uh, we could have very serious solar storms. And this times with, you know, what we're seeing as the point at which we will first observe this object with the naked eye. So when is the return date for Planet X as you have calculated it? Well, according to the Avebury 2008 formation, it's in early December that we will see it of 2012. And this formation is, uh, I studied it for two years. And it, because it's very, very unique, very, very large. Uh, this was uh, a crop circle formation that appeared in two phases and is approximately the size of nearly four soccer fields. The big disk that looks like the oversized sun, if you were to see a picture of that first formation that formed mm-hmm. earlier, okay. it's smaller. And what does that mean? what happened when it overlaid, it expanded that circle. So what does that uh, tell you? What it's doing is it's saying when this time comes, you're going to have incredibly violent solar storms. That was Marshall Masters on Coast to Coast AM from April 10th, 2011. And again, for those who didn't hear it, his line of evidence is crop circles. Masters, also for those who don't know, is someone who is a member of Mensa and claims to be incredibly intelligent. And he and his group have also proven beyond any reasonable doubt that the sun is the cause of all global warming. So moving on with that said and done, and me not commenting further on it, but just putting it out there for perhaps entertainment purpose and comic relief, although I do plan on doing a future episode on crop circles, we can get started into the background information required to make an informed decision about what could happen with respect to the sun in five days from now. Our star, unimaginatively named, is called the sun, and it goes through a cycle that lasts roughly 22 years. It's not exact, and it changes length by a few months from cycle to cycle. Once, roughly, every 11 years, the sun's magnetic field flips around roughly 180 degrees. 11 years later, it flips back again, thus starting the 22-year cycle over again. A manifestation of this on the surface of the sun that we can see is the better-known 11-year sunspot cycle. During solar minimums, there are very, very few sunspots somewhere around one a month, although there have been multi-month stretches with zero sunspots during solar minimum, or minimay. During solar maximum, there are many more sunspots. Uh, I think the maximum that's ever been recorded is somewhere in the neighborhood of 150 to 200 sunspots on the face. Sunspots are manifestations of tangled magnetic fields. Within those tangled magnetic fields, the magnetic fields can be thousands of times stronger than the average field of the sun. Sunspots very often occur in pairs, and when they do, one member will have the opposite magnetic polarity as the other. 
As sunspots grow and change, the magnetic fields get more and more tangled, and they can snap, releasing solar plasma in a whip-like effect that we usually see as a flare. The flare is visible at Earth at the speed of light, so after about 8 minutes and 20 seconds from it occurring, we'll know about it on Earth if someone's looking. The charged particles that are released and their accompanying magnetic field take longer. If moving really fast, they can get here in maybe a day or so. In general, it takes the solar wind roughly three to four days to get to Earth. The sun can release other things, such as a coronal mass ejection, which is abbreviated as CME. The cause of these is thought to be about the same as solar flares. The effect is very similar as well, only it's much bigger. A massive amount of material is ejected from the sun and goes streaming out into space. On average during solar minimum, there's a CME roughly once every five days. During solar maximum, there are more around like three per day. But when talking about these, you have to remember what Khan did not in Star Trek II. Space, at least the space that we experience, has three spatial dimensions. Not two, and definitely not one. If the sun releases something, it's pretty unlikely that it's actually going to be aimed at and hit Earth. In fact, the chances are rather small that we'll be hit by a CME or a flare simply because it can be released in any direction, and Earth is in a very specific direction. But in the event that Earth is in the path of one of these events, the basic sequence of events are that the charged particles are deflected by Earth's magnetic field. Since Earth's magnetic field has holes, some of the particles will get funneled down in the north and south magnetic poles, where they'll interact with molecules in the upper atmosphere. That's what an aurora is. These energetic particles are being absorbed by molecules in the atmosphere, and then the molecules release that energy as light. The magnetic field around Earth on the sun-facing, or day, side of the planet gets compressed a bit. The particles stream around and then pass down Earth's magnetotail, which is basically the magnetic field that gets extended beyond Earth due to the constant solar wind. It's not some supervillain in the X-Men. When the magnetic field lines snap back on the night side of the planet, they can release large amounts of energy on the terawatt scale, which sounds really big, but it's the average amount of power in a lightning bolt. If there's a really, really, really big solar event that impacts Earth, then the field can react in the same way, and does react in the same way. The difference is in the amount of deflection and compression of Earth's magnetic field lines. The field on the day side that gets hit can be depressed so much that the particles can make their way into the upper atmosphere. But, other than to satellites, the space station crew, and maybe some high-altitude airplanes, the issue is not with the charged particles, but with the changing magnetic field that the 2012 people are really big on. There exists a fundamental law in electronics called Faraday's Law of Induction. What this law states is that an electric current will be created in the presence of a changing magnetic field. So, if you move a magnet really quickly along a piece of metal, and you had the right equipment, you would be able to produce and measure a very small electric current that you created by moving the magnet. That's the issue here, 
and it's really about the only legitimate reason for people to be worried on a regional or global scale for something like this to happen. If we're hit hard enough, then the large deflections in Earth's magnetic field can create currents in wires, as in railroad tracks, telephone lines, cable TV lines, and, say, power lines. Let's go back to those NASA and National Academies of Science reports. 2000, late 2008, uh, the National Academy of Sciences, in conjunction with NASA, issued a landmark report called Severe Space Weather, where they, they concluded that if a blast the size of the one that hit in 1859, which is known as the Carrington event, the largest recorded solar blast in history, well, recorded being the key word there, we, there may have been many bigger, but we don't know them, if we were to get hit by a blast like this hit then, or 1921, up to 130 million Americans could be without electrical power for months or years. First, before I really get into that material, for those of you who have a very good ear and have been watching a bunch of conspiracy stuff, you may recognize the voice of Lawrence Joseph. He was on the television show Conspiracy Theory with Jesse Ventura that aired in January 2010. According to the National Academy of Sciences, not just me, Governor, the National Academy of Sciences, which is the closest thing we have to a Supreme Court, a scientific opinion in this world, up to 130 million people would be without electricity for months or years. We would lose basic security, emergency telecommunications, fresh water, because the pumps are electric, and we are vulnerable. And you're predicting that that is going to happen at what point in time? 2012. Lawrence Joseph is not exaggerating. Incredibly, NASA's own studies are in line with ancient Mayan predictions. So Joseph has been singing this tune for a long time. The report, published in 2008, meaning that it probably was started no later than 2006, and in fact it says that it was commissioned starting around 2003 or 4, is freely available online as a PDF that I'll link to in the show notes. Interestingly, but perhaps not unexpectedly to listeners, there is zero mention of 2012 other than a budget item and a future space mission. There is no mention of Maya. The word doom does not appear in whole nor in part of any other word. The 131-page document does have a section on vulnerabilities, and it does state, according to a study by the Meditech Corporation, the occurrence today of an event like the 1921 storm would result in a large-scale blackout affecting more than 130 million people and would expose more than 350 transformers to the risk of permanent damage. The report also states that there's about a 12-month backlog for buying these massive transformers that we need for our power grid. But the lack of a 2012 connection, either explicitly or implicitly in the report, has not stopped Lawrence Joseph. Here's what he said on October 3rd of 2012. Are you convinced the sun is going to do something? Whether oh, yeah. we're prepared or not, that's another issue. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. There's no question. And, you know, it's, the sun empowers us, the sun <laughs> destroys us. But why do people like him get airtime? Well, maybe this is one of the reasons. Hey, people, I got to tell you, this Larry Joseph made sense to me because he talked very scientifically, and he said you can go to NASA and said, if you don't believe me, call them. Yep, apparently all you have to do for Jesse is talk scientifically. Now, other than Joseph linking it to this year, 
my point in going through all this is actually not to disagree with the National Academies of Science. Much smarter people than I wrote that report. Nor am I going to disagree with the American Society of Civil Engineers, who, back in 2009, wrote America's report card on infrastructure and it gave it an overall D, with a D-plus on energy infrastructure. Our power grid is not great. It's not hardened against a significant solar storm. It is prone to failure if stuff doesn't work right. And a major outage could affect millions of people for an extended period of time. And I'm starting to sound like an astrologer because of all of these wishy-washy words. But it has before, although on a much lesser scale. The solar storm of 1859, also known as the Carrington event after the guy who observed it and recorded the largest ever seen solar flare, Richard Carrington, it was a doozy. The massive sunspots at the time released a solar flare roughly around noontime in England on September 1st, 1859. After just 17 hours, the effects reached Earth and the largest recorded geomagnetic storm occurred. Aurora were seen all over the world, including in the Caribbean. Since this was 20 years before American inventor Thomas Edison lit up Menlo Park, power lines weren't really an issue. What was an issue was telegraph lines. Operators reported being electrically shocked, sparks were thrown that started some fires, and other operators were able to operate their machines without even having the power on, all because of the induced electricity due to the changing magnetic field. Science, it works. A weaker event, although the strongest one in many decades if not over a century, was blamed in March of 1989 for knocking out the power grid in Quebec, Canada. In other words, something from the sun could definitely negatively affect us on Earth by affecting our power grid. The issue, and why this is on the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast, is that there is no link for it to 2012, and I'm interested in what Lawrence Joseph says in about a week's time. Which brings us to today. We, now in late 2012 as I'm recording this, are getting closer to solar maximum. But this is currently forecast to be one of the weakest solar maximums in the last century. Back roughly 11 years ago, we had an extended and relatively intense solar maximum. Around 2005 or so, based on the data at the time, solar physicists predicted that the cycle that we're in now would be much more intense and peak around late 2012, maybe early 2013. Problem is, there is a lot about the sun that we don't know. Some of us joke that the problem is that we have too much data, so the simpler models break down. If you followed astronomy news any time from about 2007 to 2010, you may remember that instead of starting back up to a maximum of activity, the sun was quiet. Very quiet. On coast to coast, they said it was too quiet. We had an extended solar minimum. Very extended, very minimum. We went weeks without any sunspots at all, and it lasted about two years longer than expected. Since 2009, as in three years ago, as in before any of the clips that I played for you during this episode, the new estimates were that the solar maxima would peak probably around 2013 to 2014, 
not 2012, not December 2012, and definitely not on December 21st, 2012. And it would be a relatively minor solar maximum, all things considered. That's one of the problems with a lot of pseudoscience. People latch on to some idea or some warning. When they originally latched on, it may have had some nugget of truth, some nugget of real science. But then, when it's changed or updated, because science changes and updates with new information, they ignore it. Nearly everyone I hear espousing the idea of a solar something happening on December 21st, 2012, say it's because it's an intense solar maximum. It's not. I'm recording this on December 16th, in the morning for the United States. Well, actually, it's past noon now, but you know, roughly in the morning. The sun is showing very little activity. It has a few small spots rotating now to the far side, and there's a small region that's just forming on the limb rotating into view that may produce some smaller solar flares as they develop. That's it. No new news related to a previous episode for this episode. Remember that if you do see something that's an update, something I've discussed before, please send it in. For Q&A, this question's question, or this episode's question, I suppose, I'm not editing that out, comes as a part of a question from Brian B., who asked many, many months ago, what's a good piece of planetarium software that you can have on your computer to demonstrate stuff like the fallacy of the galactic alignment that, according to folks like John Major Jenkins and the late Jose Arguez, is going to happen on December 21st, 2012. After asking about 206 friends, maybe a third of whom I've actually met before, and doing a little bit of experimenting myself with the two main freeware applications out there, I recommend Stellarium. S-T-E-L-L-A-R-I-U-M. Granted, I may be a little bit more familiar with this kind of software than the average person, but I was able to figure out after about two minutes of playing around how to put up the ecliptic grid and the galactic grid and move the time to December solstice of this year and very clearly see that there is no solar alignment with the galactic center. So, for those of you who listen to these episodes when I actually put them out as opposed to weeks and weeks later then you can show your friends that this isn't happening. I recommend Stellarium. It's free, open source, works on Linux, Mac, Windows, and I have zero connection with it, so there's no conflict of interest that you need to worry about in me recommending it. Although those of us who are Mac users who are running version 10.8 will need to disable the new gatekeeper piece of crap because it won't let you open it because it's not from the App Store nor someone who got an Apple certificate. So, you'll need to disable Gatekeeper. Anywho, that wraps up this Q&A segment. If you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available. Although the easiest is probably really just to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. On to feedback, there is a very, very incredibly minuscule correction by admission from Ben B. of Shreveport, Louisiana, USA. This is related to last episode on the photography claims of the Apollo moon hoax, part three. He says, 
This may be almost pathologically nitpicky, and it doesn't change your basic conclusions at all, but you slightly misspoke in your account of the lunar launches of Apollo 15, 16, and 17 being filmed from their respective LRVs. That's the lunar roving vehicle. While it is true that the light time delay caused tracking problems on Apollo 16, Ed Fendel, the LRV camera operator at Johnson Space Flight Center, in fact didn't, quote, almost miss the takeoff of Apollo 15. The LRV camera had a problem with its clutch during Apollo 15, likely related to progressively higher temperatures as the sun rose higher in the sky as the lunar stay progressed. It caused increasing problems with the camera's ability to control its elevation, as opposed to azimuth, during the second and third EVAs, that's extravehicular activities. On multiple occasions in the TV coverage of these EVAs, Joe Allen, the EVA Capcom at JSC in Houston, was forced to ask Dave Scott, Apollo 15 commander, to give them a hand with the camera as the TV camera had flopped either down toward the ground or up toward the sky, and could only be fixed by manually reorienting it to the horizon. As a result of these problems, when the time of lunar liftoff arrived, the ground didn't even try to follow the Apollo 15 liftoff, and kept the shot static. They knew the camera would get stuck trying to follow the LM, that's lunar module, In the TV of the Apollo 15 liftoff, the LM leaves the top of the shot and the camera stays focused on the descent stage. A discussion of the clutch anomaly can be found on pages 226-27 of the Apollo 15 mission report, part 8, available on the Apollo Lunar Surface Journal, which is available freely online. So yes, apparently I misspoke, and one would think that if these things were hoaxed, why would they put in this kind of detail? Which, actually, dovetails very nicely into The Puzzler, where I attempt, each episode, to attempt to ask a critical thinking question based loosely on the material discussed in the main segment. Last time, the scenario was this. If you were to be approached by a rational Apollo moon hoax proponent, what do you think is the most convincing piece of evidence that the landings were real? Now, I didn't get the thousand-plus responses I was expecting, but I did get a few. Chu wrote in that he would hit him with the idea that other countries tracked everything, including the Doppler shift from the radio signal, so they knew that it was set for the moon. Parrot, a.k.a. Dumbass, a.k.a. a guest on this podcast, said the Russians. Jan S. said that he would engage them, let them corner themselves, and then go for the jugular. I might be paraphrasing a bit. Robert P. had three pieces. One, retro-reflectors, two, internal politics within the U.S., and three, lunar reconnaissance orbiter images of the landing sites, which two of those I'll be discussing in a future episode. Desert Fox from the SGU forums also wrote in to say the huge number of people who would have had to have been involved. This is something that Penn and Teller's Bullshit actually covered at the end. If they couldn't even cover up Watergate, how could they cover up the moon landings? David wrote that duplication of events and the quote-unquote mistakes being repeated over and over, like the behavior of dust, no stars, etc., 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 and the Russians and the Chinese. Lots of pieces of good reasoning there, and I will be discussing some of them in more detail in a future episode. Unfortunately, there is no puzzler for this episode. After all, we 
won't be around to get the answer on the next one. By way of announcements, I'm still soliciting help for finding people backpedaling on their 2012 claims, especially people who predicted doom and gloom, like Marshall Masters that we heard in this episode, or Lawrence Joseph that we heard in this episode, both saying that something definitely would happen for December 2012, probably definitely on December 21st, 2012. So, if you happen to come across anyone who's backpedaling on their claims, please send them into podcast at sjrdesign.net. Also, don't forget to find me online at podcast.sjrdesign.net, Facebook under Exposing Pseudoastronomy, me personally on Twitter, where just about an hour ago I tweeted something about cooking chicken and brisket, Dr. Astro Stew, that's D-R, Astro Stew. The podcast is also on Twitter as Pseudo Astro. And with that said, I will leave you with this. Though the visuals are better with it, you'll probably get the point with just the audio. According to our Mayan calendar, the world will be destroyed at the end of the 13th Baktun. Unless we appease the gods' anger with a human sacrifice. Don't worry. We got a guy here we've really been fattening up. Is it you? <laughs> Not me, that guy. Bark cricket fajitas. Oh, my brave, brave glutton. I'll be so lonely when they sacrifice you to the gods. <laughs> what? No one said anything about a sacrifice. Although I... I did kind of space out during orientation. All right, already. Let's get this done while our doomed civilization is still flourishing here. Oh, any words of comfort? Ah, uh, yeah, sure. Even though you know it's coming, when you see your own beaten heart, try to act surprised, huh? It's some kid's first time. Fear not, my beloved blood offering. I have a plan. Tell me, high priest, are you interested in women? What priest isn't? Before we make love, would you mind putting a sack over your head? Is there any other way? <laughs> nice and tight. Now enter the room of pleasure. Ooh. And I shall join you shortly. Now, uh, I gotta warn you, I'm into rough stuff. Ooh, yeah, it's a good start, but, you know, make it hurt. <laughs> Ooh, that whooshing sound is really turning me up. Oh! Oh, oh yeah. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> Man, soccer's even boring for the ball. Quetzal H. Quattle, we sacrificed the wrong person. Now the Earth will be destroyed after the 13th Baktun. Could you explain that in simple ancient Mayan? Oh, of course, there's no need to shout and scream. Let's see, uh, converting to base 10, assuming for the birth of Jesus, invent and then carry the leap years from Cliven, and the world will end in 2012. And it will be Obama's fault. That wraps up this topic for the 57th, maybe final, edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have feedback, please use 1, the feedback form on the website. 2, 
send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. Three, leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website. Four, leave a comment on my blog post for the episode. Five, leave a comment on the Facebook page for the podcast. Or six, send me a tweet at pseudoastro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback and am almost caught up with feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, tell friends and family and two random people that you'll never meet in real life. And see you next year. <laughs>